This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you have a Bible with you, if you could open up to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, and if you don't, that's okay, because we, uh, we're going to project the words here for you in just a second, and uh, you can read along with us. Well, it's great to be together, great to be together this, this Easter. Thanks for being here, especially if you're a guest. Uh, we're thrilled that you would join us uh, this day, and uh, we're so thankful to have you with us. You know, often a typical greeting for today uh, is Happy Easter. You know, I was thinking about that. We typically greet each other that way. Happy Easter. And, um, you know, it occurred to me, where is the idea, where do we get the idea uh, that this is, a, this is a happy day? I suppose it's a happy day for a lot of different reasons for different folks, uh, right? When we say Happy Easter, sometimes Easter is just this time where there's just a sense of hope. I don't, I don't know why. It's just a sense of hope. Usually it's not dreary outside, so it's usually spring. There's a sense of change. It's in the air. There's, it's a spring season. Uh, things are starting to bloom. It's green. So there's change in the air. It's a new season. You can feel that. Or, uh, so oftentimes it's associated with the, with this season. Something new is what we always think. And something new is kind of happy. It's, typically happy. You get a new outfit, a new Easter outfit. You get some candy or something. There's something happy, something joyous about new and about this season. But in the story of Jesus's resurrection, which is the the reason we celebrate the day ultimately, in the story of Jesus's resurrection, it's interesting because we find this theme of joy, this theme of happiness actually embedded in the story itself. And what I want to do today is read the entire resurrection account from Matthew. Uh, He's one of the writers. There's four uh, books of the Bible that record Jesus's life, and he's one of them. And he he tells us the story of the resurrection. And I want to look at this today through the eyes of two separate groups of people. I want to look at the through the eyes of the guards who were there guarding the tomb and through the eyes of the women who who, uh, gathered at the tomb on Sunday morning, some 2,000 uh, years ago uh, or thereabouts and see where joy is found in Easter. So let's pray and then we'll jump right into this, this scripture passage. God, we thank you today that uh, you are risen, Lord Jesus, and that it is a happy day because you are alive and you have defeated the power of sin and the power of death. And now as we look at this this account of your resurrection, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that very clearly you would reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm beginning in verse 62 of Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, this is all after his death, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, in the resurrection account, there's really two groups of people, humanly speaking. There's an angel. But uh, humanly speaking, there's really two groups of people that are involved here. There are these guards who I want to look at first, and then there are these women. And they both have very different responses to the resurrection. The passage tells us that um, after Jesus was buried the next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Now, the chief priests are the religious people who are opposed to Jesus because he claimed to be God, and they, they opposed that. And uh, they are religious leaders, but they are not governmental leaders. They didn't issue the decree for his uh, crucifixion. That was done by the Romans. The Jews here are under Roman rule, so these religious leaders go to a governmental leader. His name is Pilate, and he oversaw, though he found Jesus to be innocent, he oversaw and ultimately endorsed his crucifixion. And so they go to this religious leader. I mean, the religious leaders go to this governmental leader, Pilate, Uh, who had overseen the crucifixion, uh, the burial, ultimately, of Jesus as well. And they come to him and they say, look, we we may have a problem here, because when this guy was alive, he said he would would, uh, raise from the dead. He would be raised from the dead in three days. And so to make sure that his disciples don't come in and steal him, they say they could steal the corpse, and then that fraud would be worse than the previous fraud, namely his claiming to be God. And so they say, we we need to do something about this. Well, they're religious leaders. They don't have the power of a police force. And uh, so they, uh, Pilate, the the governmental leader, says to them, okay, take a a, a group of guards with you, take a 
guards and make the tomb as secure as you can. Uh, verse 65, you have a, a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So now it's not just the religious leaders, but it's the power of Rome that is guarding the tomb of Jesus. The tomb would have been, um, it was cut out. Uh, on, on the side of a hill, side of a mountain, it would have been a cutout with a small door where you could walk in and then uh, you would have to hunch down and then could stand up in a tomb, actually. And there would usually be several benches where bodies could be laid. And so to guard this tomb ultimately and to keep it set, set off, they rolled a large stone in front of the door so that no one could enter. But now they do something more to secure it. They bring guards and they seal the tomb. This means there would have been uh, some kind of uh, cordoning off, maybe a rope or some kind of thing that went across it with a Roman seal. It was acted like a, a no trespassing sign. So now there's not only a large rock, but there's also armed soldiers. Armed soldiers and the power uh, of, uh, of Rome with their seal saying, no one may go in here. Now, they must certainly think they've triumphed. I mean, the religious leaders, he's dead. There's a large stone. There's guards. They must surely think they've won at this point. And the guards have it easy. I mean, guarding a corpse, that's pretty easy work. Um, guarding a corpse. And they're really guarding it, again, not against an army, uh, not against a group of skilled professional criminal thieves, but just like some Galilean fishermen, those were the ones who followed Jesus. So they've got it easy. I mean, it's an easy shift. It's holiday pay. It's Easter weekend. And so they are, some of you got that. There you go. And so they are guarding uh, this tomb and must surely think this is an easy deal. But look what happens. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, <coughs> excuse me, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, these two ladies were followers of Jesus, and they, they saw where he was buried. So they were there at his crucifixion. They were there at his burial. And now Sunday morning, they're going back to the tomb. One of the other Gospels tells us that they were bringing spices to anoint his body. So they expect to find him there. He was buried on Friday. Saturday, they couldn't come because it was the Sabbath. And then now it's Sunday morning, and they are coming to see him. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So they're coming, the guards are there, and then there's this earthquake. In the Bible, when God is doing something significant, there's often an earthquake. When Jesus died on the cross just two days before this, there was an earthquake. And so now there is a shaking so you can see the guards there, you can see the ladies, and the ground is shaking, and there is this appearance of an angel who actually moves the stone, and then to demonstrate the power of God, he sits upon the stone. So he is sitting on this stone, and his appearance, well, it's beyond description. I mean, the, Matthew does the best he can, but verse 3 he says, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And this is, this is amazing. There's an angel. He's sitting now. He's, there's, the earthquake has come. He's moved the stone. He's sitting on it. And he looks like lightning. 
Somebody I read said, that means he looked striking. I think that's understated. Your wife in her new Easter dress, she's striking. These guys looked like lightning, or this, this angel looked like lightning, the Scripture says. What does that look like? I mean, I've never been upright. I've never been struck by lightning or right by lightning. But seeing it at a distance, it, it just brightens up. Lightning is so bright that it brightens up the entire sky. And so there is a brilliance and a flash and a radiance about this angel that is like lightning. And his clothing is white as snow. So it's, he's brilliant. He's bright. He is white as can be. And it says that the guards, these are armed guards. These are seized, likely seasoned men of battle guarding a dead body against fishermen. Okay, These guys who are battle trained, it says that for fear of him, the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Hey, the only thing shaking more than the ground at the earthquake is these guys. They are trembling. They see him. I mean, what, what would any of us do? They're trembling, and then they become like dead men. So that probably means it means they freeze. Maybe they pass out, or maybe they're just frozen. Probably just means they're frozen like dead men, or they fall back like dead men, and they're just motionless. They look like there's no life in them because they have seen the power of God like lightning face to face. I mean, it is a powerful powerful scene. I mean, imagine what kind of an effect that would have on them. We're not sure if they hear the announcement from the angel or not. We don't know that because it doesn't tell us that. So we probably shouldn't speculate. But it says, the verse, uh, verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you have seen Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has risen. Very likely they may have heard that. They may not have heard that, but they know that the power of God is present. They know that God has acted to open this tomb. An angel has moved the stone. His appearance is lightning. They freeze like dead men. They come in contact with the power of God. I mean, surely they would never be the same after that. But it has no effect on them ultimately. I mean, we can all be like that a little bit. I mean, it's easy to think, well, you know, the Bible, all these stories are so old. If I really saw something dramatic, then I would believe. If I saw a miracle, I would believe. The problem with that thinking is throughout the Bible, people see miracles, and they're affected for a moment, but not for the long term. And that was the case with these guys, as we'll see in a minute, ultimately. They, they're, they're not changed by what they see. Their amazement, their fear, their wonder, it doesn't lead to a pursuit of the risen Savior. It doesn't lead them to become followers, but rather their shaking and becoming as dead men leads them to denying all the event altogether. It leads them to spreading a made-up story. What they do is they go back to the chief priests and they say, listen, you guys wanted that guarded. Here's what happened. It says they told them everything. The angel, this huge stone is moved, maybe the pronouncement from the angel, but everything that happened, the power of God, we were like dead men, we were frozen, unbelievable. And so what the chief priests do is they gather a bunch of money and they say, here, we're just going to give you money. Here's what you do. You just say his disciples came in the night and stole him. And if this gets back up to your boss, 
uh, don't worry about it. We will cover for you. We will take care of everything. So they give them a story. They give them a promise of protection. And they go on about their business. I mean, they have been right there. They have been right there to see the greatest event in history. Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Jesus who died for sinners. The scripture says that Jesus died on a cross and that when he was dying, it wasn't just a physical suffering, but it was his suffering for sinners. He died as a sacrifice. Our sins were placed upon him. And God the Father judged God the Son for our sins. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. And he was sacrificed in our place. He was buried. And here on the third day, he, he is risen from the dead to demonstrate that he was God. To demonstrate that what he said was true. To demonstrate that the sacrifice for sins really was accepted by the Father. To demonstrate he defeated the power of sin. To demonstrate that he defeated the power of death. The greatest event in history, and yet they were willing to deny something supernatural for money and safety, maybe. They were willing to trade the truth of God for a lie. They had the truth of God. They had experienced something of the power of God. They had observed the angel. They experienced something of the power of God. They knew this was no small deal, and yet they took that truth And they traded it for a lie. And not a very good lie. I mean, not a very good lie. The lie is that while we were sleeping, his disciples came in and stole his body. How do they know it was his disciples that came in and stole the body if they were sleeping? I mean, really, in a court of law, I've got to believe the worst witness imaginable would be someone asleep. So I was asleep on the couch... And they broke into my house, and Joe came in and stole my TV. How do you know? I was sound asleep. I saw him. (laughs) Does not make sense. Does not make sense. Does not really account for fearful Galilean fishermen who are denying they even know Jesus, in the case of Peter, that they are sneaking past a group of guards without waking them. That they are moving a large stone without waking any guards, that they are grabbing a body and walking out with it, just whispering and not waking up any guards. It's not a believable story, but they trade the truth of God for a lie that they can live with. For a lie that they can live with. And the problem is we've all done that. You see, we can come in contact with the truth of God. Some of us are coming in contact for the first time, or this is a reminder This morning, we can come in contact with the truth of God, which is the moving of the stone, the angel present. His body was not stolen. They know that. But they come in contact with the truth of God. We can do that. And then we can just choose instead to believe a lie that we can live with. We come in contact with the message that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. We come in contact with that reality, and we look at that reality, we think about that reality, but then we think it would just be easier to trade that reality for a lie that we can live with. I mean, the reality is that if Jesus really rose from the dead, it changes everything. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then his claims and his teaching 
should weigh significantly on my life. They should be life-altering. I mean, this is God who created everything. The God who spoke and everything came into existence, came to earth and was with us and taught some things and died a death and then raised, was raised from the dead. If that really happened, that should change my perspective on him. And I should investigate what he says, and really that should change my life. Really, that should affect me, not so that I'm mildly respectful, not so that I'm sort of marginally admiring him, but it should change everything for me. It should change everything in my life. See, we, we, we trade the truth of God for a lie. We, we can get close to that. Well, I, I know something about what Jesus did. I know that he was resurrected from the dead, but I've just got too much going on right now in my life to give that a whole lot of thought. I'm young. I want to live. I want to have fun. I'll do the God sort of deal when I get older. I've got time for that. Listen, that's a dangerous presumption because it presumes that when I get older, I'll be interested in God, and it presumes that I'll get older. Those are two dangerous presumptions. Well, I've just got too much going on. I'm just busy right now. I've got a lot of other interests um, and, you know, deep, philosophical, theological thoughts. I really am just not right there right now, but maybe maybe someday. There's nothing any of us are involved in that are more important that should take our busyness than this truth of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm sure God understands I think as long as I'm really not that bad, I'll be okay. Yes, I believe there is a God. Yes, I believe uh, he was resurrected. Uh, Yes, I'm not having trouble with this as you read it. I'm not saying impossible. I'm actually leaning that way. I sort of believe. Um, And that's nice, but I'm being the best person that I can be. And the truth is that none of us are a good enough person, and that's the very reason he dies on Good Friday. Jesus dies for our sins. Jesus dies in our place, and he is resurrected to give us new life so that if we turn from our sin and turn to him and believe in him for what he has done and trust him with our entire life, offer him our life, trust him as the Lord of our lives, we receive eternal life in him. God is love. God, that's true, by the way. God is love. And I just can't believe that before a loving God, I would ever die and and experience anything but joy and bliss. I'm not as bad as a lot of really bad people. And God is love. Loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell. I mean, this is a hot topic right now. This was a cover of Time magazine just within the last couple of weeks. I mean, is hell dead? Is Do we not even believe that anymore? As Amer- I mean, if we kind of voted that one out as Americans, we just not really believe that one anymore. But the truth of the Scripture is that hell is real, and hell is for those who have not received the sacrifice that Jesus has made for our sins. We've not believed. We've not trusted him. We, we're standing on our own goodness. We're standing with our own record. We're going to give an account for, before God of our lives and say, I've been good enough when actually Christ came and gave his life because none of us were good enough. Listen, I want to urge you today not, not to trade the truth of God for a lie that you can live with. I want to challenge you today not to just sort of come close and see there's something real, there's something supernatural, there's something powerful there, but I'm going to go on my life like the guards and live for something else. 
I can just put it out of my mind. I'm sure that's what they thought. I can just put I won't remember that. I can go on with my life. I don't have to deal with that. I urge you not to do that, but to turn today and to believe and to trust and receive Christ as your Savior. The women respond very differently. Look at verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. So come see, he's not here anymore. Then quickly, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So, verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy. Go tell his disciples what happened. And they run. They're full of fear. They're full of joy. Now, that's a strange combination. But they're full of fear because they've just seen a lightning being from God who told them that Jesus is alive and they realize he's alive. They've encountered the supernatural. They've encountered the presence of God. They've encountered the power of God. So they cannot go off and they will not go off and exchange that for a lie and say no big deal. But rather, they are affected by that. The fear here is not like the fear, like they heard bad news and it was a threat that God was going to get them or something. They heard great news. But there is an awe. That's what that fear means. There's an astonishment. There's a wonder. This isn't just any old story, any old account. This is an encounter with God. The God who made everything. The God who is alive in Jesus Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. And so they experience great astonishment and great joy as well. And they run to see Jesus. They run to, well, actually, they run to tell his disciples that he is alive and they bump into him along the way. This joy that they experience in verse 8, it's a natural, normal, appropriate response. And it's an appropriate response because they believe in Jesus and he's not really dead. All their hopes had appeared dashed. They don't come expecting resurrection, but he is resurrected. So all of their hopes are alive. He really is the Messiah. We have the benefit of reading the rest of the New Testament, and we know way more than these ladies do because we're able to read further and see what it really meant that he was alive. It's sort of dawning on them. I mean, they get it, but they don't fully get it like they will later. It means that those who believe in Jesus as they do have their sins forgiven. It means that they have a clean conscience. There's nothing more joyful than a clean conscience There's no state of being that's better than being able to put one's head on the pillow at night knowing that our sins are forgiven. Because of his resurrection, we have new life, new hope. Scripture says all things are made new. We have a new outlook. We have a new future hope and certainty of heaven as well. Because he's been raised from the dead, the scripture promises that one day we will be raised from the dead and we will receive a resurrection body and we will live forever with Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. So because he is raised, death does not master us. Death is not the final say. Yes, we physically die, but that's not the end. There is the promise of eternal life ahead for us. And so, yes, there's joy when you consider what that means. And later in the Scripture, they don't get all this in this moment, but later in the Scripture, it's made clear as well that His resurrection brings hope even in our suffering. 
One, one time in the Bible, Paul compares suffering, serious suffering, as light, momentary affliction compared to what awaits. Well, there's great hope in suffering. doesn't mean we check out and ignore problems. It just means that as we persevere through problems, God is present with us. Because Christ is alive, he is, uh, because Jesus is alive, he is alive in us, as we sang this morning. His spirit lives in the believer. And so there is a power to persevere in suffering. That's why Happy Easter is most appropriate, because there is great joy attached to all the promises that come with a living Lord. It's wonderful. On the way, they meet Jesus. Verse 9, the behold, Jesus met them and says, Greetings. Greetings. And, and it says they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. He said, Don't be afraid. Go tell everyone in Galilee to go to Galilee and they'll see me. They grab his feet and they worship him. They adore him. Again, this isn't a distanced, casual sort of... Uh, admiration, sort of a respect. I'm okay with God. Jesus is a good man. I'm for him. No, they're at his feet, holding on to him, expressing love, overflowing with joy, astonished by this truth. They have not traded the truth of God for a lie. They have embraced the truth of God. And there are emotions welling up in them that are just overwhelming. This joyful worship that they experience. There's really two different responses here. Someone sees something of God, knows the truth of God, knows the power of God, may not know all the details, but they know something. And rather than pursue the God who did that, they exchange what they know for a lie, which is something we've all done. And someone else hears the truth of God, sees the truth of God, and responds. And the response is joy and worship and hope and all things made new. At, at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, I think those are the only two responses. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus rose from the dead. Either that changes your life, the women, or that doesn't change your life. You may not take a bribe and take a lie and, okay, I know all that. You may not do all that, but it doesn't change your life. Something you're aware of, something you know happened, Something you believe happened intellectually, but it just doesn't make any difference on a day-to-day basis. There's really just two options. We come to the Savior believingly, or we don't believe, or we believe and it doesn't make any difference. At whatever it is, it doesn't make any difference to our lives in that case. I, I, I want to pray for those who don't know this resurrected Christ today that you would turn that you wouldn't give in to whatever lie it might be that, that controls your life, but that you would believe in Jesus as the controlling one of your life and that you would trust him and, and that you would give him your life and you would receive um, salvation today and that you would receive the promise of not only joy today, but endless joy. And I want to pray also for those who know Jesus Christ today, that today would be a renewing day that today would be a a, a refreshing day, that today would be a day where you encounter the Savior again with renewed hope and renewed strength, with this joy, with a heart of worship, 
that, that he would be real to you, that his spirit would stir your heart again so that you're not sort of, even though you believe and he's been real in the past, it's just not you're sort of on the outside looking in at Easter, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, is animating your heart and your soul today to really know him afresh and experience. There's no greater joy than what these ladies experience here because God is the creator of joy, the giver of joy. God is the creator of hope, the giver of hope. God is the one who institutes life, who grants life, and who gives new life in his Son. So what on earth could be greater than knowing our Creator, knowing our Savior, and experiencing Him? There's a lot of things to be happy about. I'm happy about your new outfit. I'm happy about your lunch, your Easter celebration that you're going to have today. I'm happy that you hunted eggs. I'm happy that you got candy. I'm happy about all those. If you're happy about those things, then I'm happy with you. But there's a greater happiness. There's a greater happiness. The food's going to be great, but the dishes have to be done. The candy's great, but somebody's going to get sick to their stomach, okay? It's going to happen. Your outfit's new, but next time, this time next year, it won't be. You'll need a new one. That one will be old. Okay, everything's going to wear out. All the joys are going to fade. Whatever those things are, they're gone. That little plastic grass, okay, that little stuff in the basket, that is not the real deal. All that stuff is just artificial sort of thing. But Jesus resurrected from the dead and alive. This is something that causes us to hit our knees and hang on to him as they do, weeping for joy that he's alive. And so everything has changed for me for eternity. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.